Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. In a culture that is growing increasingly hostile to Christians and their faith, it's not always easy for us to represent Jesus well. Believe it or not, it's been almost 24 years since Columbine. It happened uh, April 20th, 1999, when Eric Harrison and Dylan uh, Klebold uh, killed 12 students and a teacher there at Columbine. What you may not know, which wasn't really widely publicized, was that they videotaped themselves. And uh, in those videotapes, what it showed was two killers who were clearly, clearly um, hostile towards Christians and Christianity. It seems obvious they targeted three particular young Christian folks at, uh, at their school. And one of them was Casey Bernal. She was reading her Bible in the library when one of the killers came up and said to her, do you believe in God? And she said, yes, I do believe in God. And he said, why? And before she could answer, uh, he, uh, he killed her. He pulled the trigger on her. This morning, we want to return to our study of Mark. We left our study with Jesus having healed the woman with the constant bleeding, having uh, raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He had had the confrontation in the city of Nazareth. He'd been sending, he'd sent out his disciples. And uh, by, by the way, if you're watching The Chosen, um, you know, if you're watching it as they're dropping, you know, this is, this is exactly where they are in The Chosen, you know, dealing with the, his rejection in Nazareth, uh, Jairus' daughter, the woman with the issue of blood. And I just want to say that I preached my message before they dropped, okay? Because they have been saying some of the things that I speculated on a few weeks ago. It's been kind of neat for me. I speculated a number of things. I don't know if you remember the message, but I said a number of things that for me were speculation. About, about Jairus and about, uh, and about the woman. And, and in The Chosen, they have, uh, they have said some of those same things. As we pick back up in Mark, though, we're going to have a flashback about John, about John the Baptist. Now, this is a sad and gruesome story, and, and many of you sitting here this morning, you know the story well. Uh, but as I studied it this past uh, week or so, I, uh, I, I, saw a, I made several observations that I think are relevant to our engagement with culture and maybe cultural and political leaders. And uh, so what I'd like to do this morning is just share with you the observations that I made and then maybe draw a little bit of application along with those observations. So we're going to walk our way through the text. We're going to begin at verse 14. So if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. Well, what did Herod hear? 
Well, Herod heard the same things that we've been talking about. He heard about the raising of Jairus' daughter. He heard about the woman with the issue of blood. He heard about his confrontation in Nazareth. He heard about all the other miracles that we've looked at up until this point. You know, Jesus' fame has gone before him, and Herod heard all about that. And that brings me to my first observation, and it's this. Cultural and political leaders are often confused about who Jesus is and about his identity. They often get it wrong. In the story that we read, people are trying to figure out who Jesus is. Some say he's John the Baptist come back from the dead. Obviously, John's been dead a little while at this point. Others said he's Elijah the prophet because there was this promise that Elijah would come. And so some was, were saying, this is Elijah come. Still others said, this is a new prophet. He's not Elijah. He's a new prophet, but he's in that same vein of those older, olden prophets, you know, those, those guys that had the power like Isaiah and Elijah and stuff like that. They, they saw he was this kind of prophet. But Herod, Herod is convinced that Jesus is John the Baptist come back to life because he has killed him. Now, the world and its leaders have been struggling with the identity of Jesus for 2,000 years. Let's start with Pilate, right? Pilate, Jesus stands before Pilate before he's even been killed. And, and Pilate is asking him, who are you? Who are you? Are you a king? And then you got Agrippa when Paul tells him all the stuff about Jesus. And, and Agrippa says, am I supposed to be converted by what you're telling me? And ever since then, leaders have been leaders in the political and cultural world. They have been grappling with who is Jesus. When Peter was asked, who, who do you say that I am, Peter? Remember Peter, or not Peter, who do you say I am? He speaks to all the disciples. Peter speaks up. And P Peter says, you are the anointed king. You're the Messiah. You're the one that God promised. You are, and he adds to that. He says, you are the son of the living God. Now, there have been political leaders and cultural leaders who have affirmed Peter's conviction. There have been many throughout the ages, throughout the world, who have affirmed that same conviction. But quite a few, they get it wrong about Jesus. They don't, they don't necessarily, they don't believe that about Jesus, although they might think he's, he's something important. To some of them, he's just a great leader. They revere him for his courage and for his teachings. But like Herod, they really don't have an understanding of who Jesus is. And they don't love him and they don't follow him. Now, let me say something here. And, and again, I, I, this message, maybe, maybe when I'm finished in this talk, you're going to say, well, this is loosely connected to what we read. Maybe that's going to be the case. It's a good thing when our cultural and political leaders follow Jesus. Would you agree? I mean, I hear you guys praying it all the time that what our nation needs is for godly leaders to lead us. But be careful, everyone. Be careful that you don't put your hope in these leaders who sometimes have it right, sometimes they don't have it right, sometimes they're confused. Don't substitute political leaders for Jesus. Don't put your hope in them to change our world. Put your hope in Jesus to change our world. Because even some of the leaders that we want to put in leadership because we think they share our same perspective on Jesus, they're, they're confused and sometimes they're outright wrong. And sometimes they don't really know who Jesus is. Again, don't misunderstand me. 
I, I think it's important that, that we pray for, and we're in a nation that gets to elect our political leaders. Did you know that? Some kind of cool in all of history, and all of time, really, that we get, to, we get to elect our leaders and put them in power. But how do you think when people aren't in power who aren't followers of Jesus, how do you think they got there? They got there because people voted them in, right? We just need to be careful. Leaders, our political and cultural leaders, they often don't get it about Jesus. And so as much as I'm I'm not trying to say we don't work to that end, don't put your hope in those leaders. Let's put our hope in the Lord Jesus. So let me move on. What comes next in the flashback is why Herod thought Jesus was a reliving of John the Baptist. I wasn't say a reincarnation, but it's not really a reincarnation because they've been contemporaries, Jesus and John, right? I guess he thinks somehow it's been the, the transmission of John's soul into Jesus somehow. Whatever he believes, verse 17. For Herod himself had given the orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. And because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, when Herod heard heard him, that is John, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to John. That brings me to my second observation. Here it is. We have a responsibility to speak the truth to culture or to cultural leaders. I'm going to use Herod as a cultural leader. I'm going to use him as a political leader. I'm going to use him kind of as a stand-in for all uh, of culture. John felt responsible to go and confront Herod Antipas that what he had done was wrong, that that what he had done was unlawful because he had taken his brother's wife. Now, he's not, it's not against Roman law, but it's against, God's, it's against God's law. Now, here's a quick sketch. Herod the Great was the Herod, the king, who was ruling at the time of the birth of Jesus. Remember, Herod the Great was a wicked, evil man. He, um, I, I, I might even think he was somewhat deranged. I'm not really sure. He had many wives and many children. Two of his sons were Philip and Antipas. Also, the, the, the Herod that we're talking about in this text, his real name is Antipas. Herod is sort of like the, it's like a king name, right? So he, his name is Antipas, and Philip and Antipas are two sons of Herod the Great. They have different moms. Uh, they're half-brothers, if you would. Herodias was um, the wife of, um, excuse me, Herodias was the daughter of another brother. Now, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, Aristobulus. Aristobulus, I'm going to say it like that, Aristobulus, right? He was an older brother to Philip and to Antipas. His dad, Herod the Great, had had him killed. And when he killed this older son, he gave Antipas's I'm going to call him Bullis, okay? Because I can't know how to pronounce It's A-R-I-S-T-O-B-U-L-U-S. How do you pronounce that? I'm going to call him Bullis from here on out, right? So Herod had killed Bullis, and he had given his daughters to be married to his other sons. And one of Bullis's daughters was Herodias. 
She was just a child. I mean, just a young child. I think she was maybe eight years old when he gave her to Philip to be his wife. He didn't marry her. Philip didn't marry her until she was 12 years old. All of Herod the Great's sons uh, were educated in Rome. Philip, Philip decided to stay in Rome. He never left Rome. Uh, Antipas returned, of course, to Palestine, where he was reigning over Galilee. When, when she was 15, Herodias, she married, or Philip married her when she was 15, and they had at least one daughter. Maybe they just had the one daughter, I don't know, but they had one daughter named Salome. In 26 AD, which is about the time of Jesus and his ministry, Antipas decided to visit his brother Philip in Rome. He was going to go visit him and Herodias and Salome. He was just going to go visit his brother. Antipas probably was in his mid-40s at this point. Herodias was in her early 40s. And when he went there to Rome, they fell in love and they had an affair. And, uh, and it was decided that Herodias would divorce Philip and marry Antipas and uh, so Herodias, now instead of being married to Uncle Philip, she's going to be married to Uncle Antipas, who was about her same, uh, same age. A lot of people have made something about the incest thing. I think at this point in time, this was a normal practice and it wasn't necessarily viewed as incest. But Antipas divorced, Antipas divorced his wife. Her name was uh, Phasilius. Uh, to marry Herodias, and Herodias and Salome and Antipas moved back to Tiberias where they lived in his palace there by the Sea of Galilee. In the Old Testament, God had prohibited this divorce and marriage. It said in Leviticus chapter 20, if a man takes his brother's wife in his impurity, he has uncovered his brother's nakedness, they shall be childless. As hard as it was, John felt, and here's, here's my observation, John felt compelled to speak the truth to this political, cultural leader of his day. It, again, if you're watching The Chosen, one of the things, and again, uh, you know, The Chosen is, is there's a lot of uh, license taken in there, but one of the things that they portray Her, uh, John the Baptist as in that in, those, in that video series, is they portray him as feeling responsible to go and confront Herod. And Jesus even asked him, are you sure you want to do this? And, and Herod, I mean, uh, John the Baptist is like, yes, it, I am responsible for this. And that's the observation that I want to make. And, and, and there's, if, if you would, I, I want to make that as an application for us. I think we have responsibility to speak into our culture we have a responsibility to do the same, just like John the Baptist felt. Now here are a couple of thoughts about that, if I could just sort of flesh that out a little bit. Number one is we need to speak to the issues of sin in our culture that are presently at hand. In other words, it's, it's, not, it's not, who cares if we're speaking about something that everybody agrees with? Who cares if we're speaking about something that everyone says, oh yeah, I agree with that. I mean, that's, that, we need to speak to the issues that are presently at hand in our culture that are not right, that are wrong. We need to speak the truth to those particular pressing issues. Because if we don't, then we're just cowards. We're just cowards, and we're willing to talk about something that doesn't really matter. Last week I told you about uh, Albert Einstein and how he, he applauded the church for being the one entity that stood up against Hitler and Nazism, right? But there's a flip side to that, too, that many in the church at that time, they weren't willing to speak up. 
We've all heard the stories about churches near the tracks, the railroad tracks. And so when the, when the trains filled with Jewish folks heading towards the concentration camps, the believers would sing all that much louder so they wouldn't have to hear the cries of the people as the trains went by. So, you know, it, that was the issue of that day, right? I mean, if we speak against that now where it's not necessarily happening, so what? That was the issue of that day, and that's where the church, all the church, should have been loud and clear. The issues of our day are issues like the sin of adultery. We need to speak against that. The sin of divorce. We need to speak against that. The sin of homosexuality. The sin of abortion. The sin of rejecting the gender binary. And I'm not talking about people who have gender dysphoria. I'm not talking about people who have some sort of mental problem with their gender. I'm talking about the rest of us that are affirming this dysphoria. I'm talking that that is a sin in my, in my opinion. The sin of greed, the sin of materialism, the, the sin of hedonism. These are the issues of our day. These are the issues that you and I need to speak out on. These are the issues where we need to bring the truth of God to bear on the issues of our day and in our culture. Now here's the second thing, that, that, that trying to flesh this out, that we need to speak to culture just like John did. We need to feel a responsibility to do that. Number two is we need to speak to each other as believers, even as we speak to others outside in culture. In other words, it, a lot of times it's very easy for us to be in here and, and speak out against people out there and not speak to ourselves because we don't want to be what? Judgmental. You know, we, we don't want to be judgmental, and so we, we, we feel this license to call out the sin of people out there, but we don't feel responsible to call out our own sin. And I see this all the time. Uh, you see, especially in politics, we call the wrong out on the other folks that aren't in our tribe, but the people that are in our tribe, we don't say anything about the wrongs there. So if we're going to speak out to culture we need to be willing to speak out to each other about what is sin and, and, and when it's there. Number three, we need to speak truth and love, not with hatred, harshness, or a haughty, judgmental spirit. I don't know why this is, but it's so easy, isn't it, to cast stones at other people's sin. It's so easy to stand up in our, on our spiritual platforms and just sort of look down on other people and speak down to them. Paul told the Ephesians, and I think by extension us, this is what he said, speak the truth in love. Let us grow in every way in him who is the head, that is the Messiah. We don't need to use biting, sarcasm, name-calling, vilifying motives. We don't need to do that. Now, sometimes those figures of speech like sarcasm, maybe there is a place for them, right? But you understand what I'm saying, don't you? When we're calling out the sin of others, we're calling it from a perspective of I love you, rather than I'm better than you and you just need to get on board like me. And that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what God is talking about. Number four, and this is my final one, our goal in these conversations should not be to win but to persuade. You know, our desire in a conversation is going to be the key to how we measure success. And if our goal is to win, whatever we call that, right, to, to, to make more points than them, to, to somehow just like have an aha moment and just be able to sort of stomp on them, then, then we've lost from the beginning. We've lost from the beginning. But if our goal is to persuade someone of what is true, 
and to persuade someone of where flourishing lies. Beloved, listen, God gave us his rules, not because he just wants to keep you under his thumb. God gave you the rules and the laws and the, and the, and the things that he says are right. He gave us those because they flow out of his nature, but he gave us those because that's where flourishing is found. That that's, where, that's where the life of joy is found. When we live you know, inside the boundaries and inside the, the goodness that he's given us, that's where flourishing is found. So the goal of our conversation shouldn't be to win. It should be to help other people find a place of flourishing. You know, and, and if you look at it that way, then you're, you're never looking down on people. You're, you're actually maybe looking up, trying to help them find their way. Here's another observation. We should speak to people, not about people. Look at verse 18 again. John was telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now I may be reading more into this than it was there, but I'm going to take it literally, and I'm going to say that John was speaking to Herod. And I'm going to assume that means that John was personally speaking to Herod. I looked to see if I could find it somewhere that John was out in the crowds preaching against Herod to everyone else, but I couldn't find it. Every place it says John was saying to Herod. John was saying to Herod. In Matthew 18, it tells us when we're dealing with sin in our own family here, how do we do it, right? How do we do it? Do I stand up here and speak about your sin, your particular sin to the rest of you? That's not, that's not even, that's not, maybe at some point you get to that, but that's not where we start. Where we start is you go to the person personally, right? That's how we deal with one another. And it seems to me that's how we should deal with confronting culture. We should do it personally and not bashing people or something to other people. Have you ever noticed how people who would not say boo to someone else will get on their social media stuff and they'll, they'll just bash everything and everybody with vitriol? But they wouldn't say boo to you to your face personally, right? Listen, what I'm trying to say to you is if we're going to follow John's model of conviction to speak to his culture, then we need to follow his model and how he did it. And that is that he goes personally and he confronts that person. Now, I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking, well, well if that's the case, man, I, I, don't, I don't know any cultural leader or any political leader so that I can go and confront them. Well, if you don't, if you don't have that position, somebody else may have. But I'm suggesting to you, it's not your position to do it if you don't have the position to do it. In other words, we buy the lie from the enemy. I think this is a lie from the adversary, right? That we get on our social media and we're confronting some political leader. We're not confronting a political leader. He's not reading our stuff. You think any of the people that you think are wrong or errant are actually out there reading your Facebook and you're somehow confronting them? You're not confronting. All you're doing is stirring up the waters. All you're doing is stirring up dissent. So here's my point when it comes to confronting culture. Confront culture from where you have the privilege of confronting culture. In other words, you speak to your circle of influence. That's where you speak. And so you personally talk to your family 
about when, 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 when people in my family are stepping outside of, outside of God's flourishing, I need to go to them personally and I need to talk to them about God's flourishing. Not from judging them, not from, from some point up here where I'm looking down, but I go because I want them to flourish. I want them, I want their lives to flourish. So I go to my family and I go to my friends and I go to my coworkers and I go to my neighbors and, and I speak the truth to them because those are the people in my circle of influence. Now, some of you may end up with a platform. Maybe you, maybe you have a platform to speak in, in a broader way. And if you have, I'm not saying don't use that, but I'm just saying for most of us and even people who have a big platform, I really think that the place that God wants us to model like John did here is, is we go to the people personally. We go to them personally. And don't forget, we go, we go with not a, it, how we go matters. How we go, how we say what we say matters. So speak the truth in love. The goal is to persuade, not to win the argument. Still another observation, not everyone is going to appreciate your thoughts on truth. Maybe you already already know that, but let me just remind you of it. Not everyone is going to agree with you on where flourishing lies. Not everyone is going to agree with you when you talk to them about what you believe is truth, what you know to be truth. Not everybody's going to agree with you. Verse 17, Herod Antipas had John arrested, but it's probably because of Herodias, probably because of his new wife. She could not stand John. She wanted to kill John. Let's pick up the story, verse 21. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At once, Salome hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. And although the king was deeply distressed because of his oath and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison. Now, so I thought about this this morning. I almost went interrupt with the reading. I thought about this. John's just sitting in his prison. And just the door clanks and the guy kills him right then and there. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. Seems that Herod had, had John arrested because of Herodias. She, uh, she obviously hated John because John was saying who she married wasn't right. I mean, here she married Antipas, and, and I'm going to speculate a little bit here. She married Philip when she was like 15. He would have been quite a bit older than her. There's probably not that romantic spark between them, but with Antipas it is. They're the same age, and she's, she's happy in her marriage, and here is this person telling her, you've done wrong. She hates John. Story's pretty straightforward. There's a birthday bash for Herod. Whether Herod planned it or Herodias planned it, we don't know. But I do believe it's probably Herodias that arranged her daughter, Salome, to go and to dance, her teenage daughter most likely, to go and dance before uh, this group of men. And I'm guessing, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right, but the dance is provocative and sexual. 
And it pleased these half-drunken older men. And Herod was so pleased that he offered up to half his kingdom. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing here, but I imagine that's probably a proverbial exaggeration. I don't really think that he would have given her half his kingdom. That'd be my thought. But this is probably a proverbial way of saying, I'll give you whatever you want. And he expected her to ask for money and jewelry, probably. But she doesn't. She says, let me go ask mom. And I, I don't know that it was, I don't think it was planned. I really don't. I, but in a moment, man, her mom said, ask for John's head. And, uh, and of course, he feels obligated by his oath. He feels obligated by what he said in the presence of all these people. And evidently, that's a reasonable request. He cannot deny it. And so they bring John's head on a platter to Salome. And I, I mean, I, I just, I visualize that. And then she carries that to her mom. And, and my point is, it's easy to observe that not everyone is going to get excited about your truth claims. Not everyone's going to get excited and love you because you're saying to them, listen, there is a gender binary in the world, right? There is a sexual binary in the world. And, and, and you know, you can deny it. You can want to say it's not, but there is. You know, there is. And people aren't going to agree with you, right? You can say, listen, flourishing is found in heterosexual relationships, not in same-sex relationships. This is where you find flourishing. You can say that, and you can try to show people that truth, but not everybody's going to agree with you. In fact, I imagine you'll get hate mail from some people if, if that, you know, from some of your friends or neighbors or colleagues at work, if you, but, but a lot of, again, a lot of it depends on how you say things, everyone. It matters how you speak the truth, whether you love people and they know, listen, I think if people know we love them and we speak with love, we can say things that are countercultural. But if we speak from some kind of arrogance, if we speak from some sort of uh, spirit of I'm better than you, et cetera, then no one's going to listen to us. I had a conversation with a friend a few months ago on, uh, on the Tennessee school district that banned sexually explicit books for seventh and eighth graders. I don't know if you saw that or not, but I had a friend, uh, it was on Facebook, who uh, was just raging about censorship. And I thought, man, this is, this is such an easy place to speak into truth. So not on Facebook, but in private, you know, I, I engaged my friend, thought easily I could convince my friend, this isn't censorship. They're not, nobody's saying these books should be censored from culture. They're saying they're inappropriate for seventh and eighth graders. And parents should have a right to not have their children be exposed to such material at that young of an age. But you know what? I, I could not convince my friend. In fact, he was snarky with me throughout the whole, the whole time we were communicating. I could not convince him that this was not censorship. So you're not going to convince everyone. Many people will not be convinced, okay? But, but we have, I believe, a responsibility to confront, to confront culture, even though... Some people aren't going to go along with it. Next, uh, next observation I made is that cultural and political leaders are often double-minded about truth. Herod Antipas is a perfect picture of that. I mean, he's a political leader, and uh, he's stuck with Salome's request, and so you know he, has, he can't go back on his word. 
But we read earlier, here's what it says earlier, but Herodias could not kill John because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. So he has this holy man arrested, right? But he believes he's a holy man, a righteous man. And then when Herod would listen to him, he'd be very perplexed over the things he said, meaning that he just didn't understand them or whatever, but then, but he liked to listen to him. He liked to hear what John was saying. So, so here's, here's how I take that. I think he's recognizing that what John is saying is true, but he's not willing to, not willing to act on it not willing to live it out, not willing to respond to it with repentance. And so many political leaders are like that, everyone. So many political leaders are double-minded. They know the truth in their inner being and, and they are convicted, but they're not willing necessarily to repent and to live out the truth. But it's not just them, it's us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of something and we are unwilling to repent. We're unwilling to listen. We are double-minded. To be double-minded means to be on the fence. It means to be thinking about the same thing in two distinct ways. James tells us, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We are to repent and not be double-minded. Remember what Joshua told the people of Israel when they were vacillating between following God and following the Baals? He said, hey, choose you today. Stop being double-minded. If God be God, then love God. If the Baals be God, little g, then follow them, love them. But stop being double-minded. You know, a lot of our political leaders are double-minded in culture. We need to speak to that double-mindedness. Another observation you're following your notes on the back page, we're, we're almost there. We don't need to be shocked by the culture around us. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun, right? This mom's putting her daughter up to dance sexually before a group of older, drunken men. She's probably a teenage girl. Sounds just like today, doesn't it? I bet it was 20 or 30 years ago Jerry Springer came on the TV, right? And what did Jerry Springer do? Jerry Springer highlighted stuff like this. And you know what? We just kept watching it and watching it. Now there's more and more and more shows just like this. More than 29 million reports of suspected child sexual exploitation come to the National Center of Missing Exploited Children annually. That's, that's more than half a million uh, a week. Nothing should shock us. We are capable of just egregious evil. Every one of us, even those of us who follow Jesus, we are capable of evil. But this is why we got to speak to the culture. This is why we got to tell the culture where flourishing is found, because if we don't speak truth, if we don't speak flourishing, who will? No one will. This is why we can't be silent. This is why the Bible calls us, this is why Jesus calls us. Jesus calls us his followers. He says, you are the what? Salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You, you guys, you and me, we're the ones that need to be preserving culture, whether it's our American culture, whether it's a Brazilian culture, whether it's a European culture, a, a, a Czech culture, whatever culture it is, the believers in that culture need to be preserving that culture. Don't run from culture, everyone. Transform it. Let's run into it, if you would. Run into it and let's be, let's be 
with, with the love of Jesus, let's go into culture and speak the truth so that we transform it. Don't, don't become like culture. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can transform culture. And my final observation is that following Jesus, speaking truth may cost you dearly. It's not just that the people aren't going to like you. It's not just that people aren't going to agree with you. It may cost you to speak truth. John lost his life because of his speaking truth. The person offended had the power to kill him, and they did. Our four brothers and four sisters have embraced suffering in following Jesus. But you know what the Western American church says? God wants you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. I mean, none of, this, none of this persecution stuff, none of this sorrowful stuff. No, God wants you to be, what do they say, things like, God wants you to be the kings, God wants you to sit on top of the pile, stuff like that. Any path of discipleship that does not anticipate suffering in following Jesus, you've missed Jesus somewhere. And don't misunderstand, I'm not trying to say that you're going to suffer all the time, every minute, but you will suffer. You will suffer for following Jesus because not everyone, you will suffer if you follow Jesus and, 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 and live like Jesus wants you and me to live, speaking the truth in love. You will suffer. People, not everybody's going to agree and sometimes it's going to really cost you. Jesus said, as they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And your response to persecution, let's get it straight now. What is it? We said it last week. What is your response to persecution? Not a rhetorical question. Somebody answer me. What is it? I can't hear you. Rejoice. Rejoice? What else? Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who persecute you. That is what Jesus tells us to do. And let's face it, everyone, persecution is going to arise against believers. I don't mean persecution like our brothers in Afghanistan have it right now, or our brothers and sisters in North Korea, or our brothers and sisters in China. I'm not talking about that. That may come, but it won't be in our lifetime or in our grandkids' lifetime, I don't believe. However, however, the water temperature is going to rise. And it is, going, it is going to cost us to speak the truth. It is going to cost us to speak the truth. So speak, but speak the truth in love. And when people come against you, bless those who curse you and do good to your enemies. Keep your present hardship in perspective by remembering this. Jesus suffered and he promises us one day, he promises us that he will restore all things and he's going to bless you. And he'll be no debtor to any of us. Each of us will have trouble in this life for either doing good or doing evil. Choose wisely. So a quick rehash of what I just said to you. Number one, or no number one. We are to speak the truth to culture, not from a judgmentalism, but from love. Don't be afraid, though many will not receive it, and it may cost you, even like it cost John. Speak to people in conversation in your sphere with gentleness. Don't yell at people from your social media page. Just don't do it. Stop doing it. Don't, 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 all you're doing is raise the temperature. And do you know anyone who's ever been changed by, by our social media yelling at one another? Have any of you been changed? 
The only times I've ever been changed is when somebody engages me and I get to talk to them and I get to hear them. That's when I'm, that's when I'm changed. That's when things change me. And that's, that's when they're going to change you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Be that salt and be that light. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.